Welcome to Monk's Tape. So thank you folks for joining Monk's Take, the St. Joseph's College Athletics podcast. Today we are joined by Rick Simons, basically the individual who put St. Joseph's College on the map, at least athletically in the country, if not overall. Uh, Coach Simons, longtime men's basketball coach and athletic director here. Too many accolades to mention uh, but we'll get to those as the podcast continues. Coach, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, anytime I get to uh, talk about St. Joe's and, uh, and uh, the Mad Monks, and I'm, I'm happy to do so. It's awesome. Uh, we always love when you come and, and induct your, your Hall of Famers here and give the speeches and the stories are always so great. So I know we'll get a lot of that here today. Been looking forward to this. So Coach, well, before we get into uh, some of the things that, that you did later in your career, which are numerous, let's start out where you were before. Let's go way, way back um, and before St. Joe's and a three-sport athlete at USM, later named as a Hall of Famer there. And it, you, you must have, a, a as, as an aside, you must have like a boilerplate Hall of Fame speech, uh, you know, having been inducted into, what is it, five Halls of Fame? Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Yep. I bet not many people can say that. Um, so, so talk about your time uh, going into college, playing at USM and, and, you know, that era of your, of your life. Well, thank you. Uh, I was, uh, athletics was always a very big part of my life. My dad uh, was in the Boston Red Sox organization. And while he didn't make the parent club, he was with Louisville, which was the AAA franchise at the time um and uh so as a as a kid growing up i i had an expectation that baseball was going to be the you know direction i would head uh had you know quite a bit of success through little league and babe ruth and legion and all um uh, and uh, you know m- maybe had more success in baseball at say at usm than i did basketball uh, although i started all four years there um and it was just something that you know, I, growing up, I didn't turn to basketball uh, at an early age, whereas, like I say, baseball, from the time I could walk, I was, uh, you know, th- playing catch. Um, but basketball came to me later, and, um, you know, back then it was very different. Every, everything was different in that we didn't play anything out of season. Today, kids are asked to, you know, specialize, and we just played all the sports. Um, and so, you know, I had some success at, at USM and, and what really prompted me to, to, to uh, perhaps succeed was that uh, I went to MCI um, and after that, I, the coach there was a gentleman by the name of Pete Fisk. Uh, he had a, played a large role for me in that he helped get me a job as a counselor at Kutch's Sports Academy which was in the Catskill Mountains. And back, uh, back then, all of the NBA players, they, today everybody stays in shape. They have pers- their own personal trainers, et cetera. But back then, the players oftentimes would have jobs in the summer because they weren't making enough money uh, and they would play themselves into shape. And Kutch's was where most of them or many of them went. 
uh, to engage in, you know, competition. And, and they had Maurice Stokes was a gentleman that played with the Cincinnati Royals many years ago and was, in, was involved in an accident in which left him paralyzed. So they had each summer a, a Maurice Stokes game at Kutch's and, and all of the great players would come to help try to raise money. I was one of 42 counselors. Pete Fisk knew some of the people uh, personally. And the, the gentleman that ran that uh, camp was Claire B. Uh, and I'm sure that most young people today never heard of Claire B. But he was uh, legendary in that an outstanding college coach and wrote the Chip Hilton sports books for boys, which I had read, you know, voraciously. Uh, so it was it was a terrific experience. And I can I think I can truthfully say that I was the 42nd best counselor there <laughs> in terms of playing ability. Um, I think it was 14 of them went into the NBA and it, and it was a very frustrating experience for me because having played at Walderboro High School, uh, you know, that bastion of basketball excellence. I, I thought that I was pretty good, uh, but it, it's, I realized very quickly upon arrival at Kutch's that I, I was not pretty good. And so I can remember setting a screen on a young man from who later played at South Carolina and later on the NBA, Brian Winters. And he, uh, he threw me on the ground in the pavement outside and said, if you ever set uh, a screen on me again, I'm going to kill you. And I woke up, I, you know, I, I got up off the, the, the pavement with tears in my eyes and, and walked back to my cabin and basically had to make a decision. Am I going to quit and go home or, it, it, you know, was that the turning point? So I, I put weights on my ankles and which isn't necessarily recommended today, but I ran three or four miles a day and decided I would individually become, you know, more successful. Uh, and, and, you know, all of the counselors were allowed to play in very briefly uh, in one of the games. So I was on the court for literally probably 30 seconds with Wilt Chamberlain and, and some of, you know, Oscar Robertson and some of the great players. The, the good counselors got to play quite a bit. And like I said, uh, they put me out long enough just to say that I was on the court and then got me the heck off of there. But I think it paid huge dividends when I went to USM. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I was in it, the all intents were for me to go to Kent State. Uh, I've always had an interest in journalism. They had a very good journalism program there. And uh, virtually a week before it was time for me to board the plane to go to Kent State, it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, I'm not a Division I athlete. Uh, and I would, you know, my whole life had been involved in sports. So therefore, boy, I'm going to be, you know, miserable. So, uh, and this is, I find this kind of a fascinating story, Corey, because I then called my high school coach, Bob Green, and said, I've decided that I'd like to change. And my best friend, Jim Grapham was going, and many of my other friends were going to, you know, back then it was Gorham State and all. Is there any way I could go there? Well, he checked with Dick Costello, the athletic director and men's basketball coach. And I've never applied. I never applied to, to USM, to Gorham State, um, because I just never thought of, that I would go there. So he called me and um, said, no, but what we'll do is we'll let you go the first semester 
uh, night school, and then we can transfer you in. Well, that was on a Friday. School began on Monday. I got a call at home Sunday saying, we've got you in, come in first thing in the morning into Dick Costello's office, uh, and you got to sign a couple of pieces of paper. So the irony, which probably couldn't get away with this today, is that I actually have a bachelor's and a master's from USM and, and still haven't even applied there yet. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, that was one of those. And, 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 you know, I had pretty good, uh, pretty good scores and, and, and actually quite high test scores. So they were able to sneak me in under the radar, I guess. So that uh, and my basketball experience at Kutch's really, you know, paid dividends because I was the only back then there was freshman basketball. I was the only freshman that made the varsity. And uh, after I think it was five or six games, uh, I then started the rest of the season. Wow. It's always interesting to hear kind of these origin stories and, and you know, the, the, certainly getting into USM that way is, is really unique. Um, so three sport athlete. Uh, you were a soccer goalie, correct? My senior year, they didn't have a, a keeper. And I was, I played, you know, a lot of baseball and had good hands. And so they asked me if I'd come out uh, and I did uh, and, and really enjoyed it. So yes, I got four letters in baseball, four in basketball and, and one just my senior year in soccer. Okay. Okay. But still quite a, quite a feat uh, to do both sports for four years. And then that senior year, which is usually very busy anyway, <laughs> to be a three sport athlete. You certainly didn't have a lot of downtime. So what made you go into coaching? Like, it seems like you, you're talking about being the, the counselor at that esteemed camp and the Catskills. So coaching probably was in your blood from, you know, a very early age, I would guess. You know, boy, and this is, I'm going to, everything I say on this podcast is going to be a hundred percent truthful as I remember it. Um, so therefore, if I, if I offend anybody, I'd certainly not intended. But a lot of, we were back then coaching was not as significant. Um, you know, I, I think to some of the great quotes that, you know, people made, you know, uh, the, the gentleman at Kansas when Will Chamberlain, well, you know, I hear Chamberlain's going to Kansas. Well, I hope he goes out for the team. And, <laughs> and you know, it, it's things like that. And it, you don't coach basketball, you just play it, uh, was once said. Well, I, I remember thinking, that I really want to become a coach more because of what I felt I wasn't given. Uh, I think that many of my coaches coming from small towns were, were erstwhile and very well-intentioned, but you know, we never really got the nuances of, of plays or it was just, you know, play hard, be, you know, be highly motivated. Uh, and I wanted to, to go to another level. I, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of uh, pictured this being much more of a student of the game. Uh, and, and I wanted to see where that could take me. So sad to say, but I think it's I, I, more often than not, I would say when I become a coach, I won't do it this way. I think I said that to myself many more times than I said, uh, you know, I hope to emulate this. Gotcha. Gotcha. You want to do it the right way. So I know that you, you got your start uh, in, in local settings like uh, Bristol Consolidated School, Ellsworth High School, 
uh, talk about those early coaching stints. Well, I, yeah, uh, I went in the, in back then it was Vietnam. Um, and so I went in the national guard, uh, after graduating. And, uh, when I came out, uh, I got out in December and, uh, I was called by again, Bob green, uh, my previous high school coach who was told me that there was an opening in Bristol at the consolidated school for a history teacher, social studies teacher, and a, like a junior high coach, uh, and it was girls. And I said, well, okay, I don't want to coach junior high. I'd rather not coach girls and I don't want to teach social studies. Um, and then, so I said, other than that, it seems like a perfect job. You know, he said to me, he says, oh boy, are you missing the boat? Because if you want to get a job, you got to get your foot in the door and then, you know, things will happen. So I thought about that. And of course, it was the middle of the year. And, and the, the person I was going to replace was going on maternity leave. And that's why there was an opening. So uh, I went down, coached, you know, took the job, coached the girls. And we had a terrific, uh, we had a terrific, uh, you know, positive experience. I really enjoyed it. Uh, those kids were committed. Uh, I coached softball after that. And I can say this with, with all candor, that one of the biggest, victories I've ever had and obviously I've had a few now as old as I am um, was when we won the softball championship at at Bristol over a team which was Damascot a Kastner uh, that had just absolutely you know thumped us during the season twice and it was just the kids were so excited and and the way it happened and so I, I still you know I later was after we beat at St. Joe's, we beat Biola, the number two ranked team in the country. Uh, they asked me if, if this was the biggest win. And I said, well, along with that win over Kastner, uh, <laughs> which of course, everybody looked at me like I had three heads. What, what, what possibly was that victory? But to those kids, it was like winning a national championship. So, so that was exciting. And, uh, and then I was offered the job um, at Ellsworth High School. And Dale Higgins was the superintendent. He's, I remember him interviewing me for the position. And he said to me in Ellsworth, basketball was very big in Ellsworth. They'd won state championships, had Jack Scott and, and others that were just terrific players. Uh, and he said, in Ellsworth, there are two things that make for a great year. One is the basketball season. And the second is a good graduation. He said, I'll take care of the graduation. So in other words, for this town, for this, you know, to have a good year, I had to do a good job uh, coaching. And, uh, and of course, all I'd coached at that point was junior high girls. So it was, you know, going up against Bangor and Orono and some of the really big programs in, in Northern Maine. Uh, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, but my first year we we didn't make the playoffs we lost by 1.34 uh in the heel point system we finished nine and nine which mm. actually was their first non-losing season and in, in several um but everywhere i went that year everywhere i put 1.34 so every time the kids went into a classroom they went into a gym we you know in other words that's how close we were to making the playoffs and it was you know, it, it was, uh, from that point on, we, we had pretty good success. I love that. A, a constant reminder of, of, uh, you know, just the, the game of inches, one win, you would have been there. Exactly. 
Exactly. So Ellsworth, how long were you coaching at Ellsworth? I coached there for five years. Okay. Never won a never won a championship. We were we were we had terrific athletes, many of which went on to play college basketball, um, but we were very small. In fact, we were dubbed by Bill Green, who was back then he was the the uh, sports guy up in Bangor at the Mighty Midgets, um, and so our center was six one, and 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 I had I did have a kind of a lanky well-to-do sophomore um, by the name of Mike McDevitt that uh, played. Uh, he didn't, he didn't get an awful lot of playing time at that point um, until a little bit later in his high school career, but uh, went on to become an outstanding player. And not a bad coach. And not too shabby a coach. <laughs> so from Ellsworth to St. Joseph's college, is that how it went? And you're coaching uh lineage or was there somewhere in between the two no that was it and what here's what happened i was offered the job as the head coach of the main lumberjacks which was at that time moral worcester from Cherryfield, maine um bought the franchise he is better known now as the blueberry king or and what he does also is he he takes the wreaths uh, and I forget exactly what that's called, but wreaths across America, or he, okay. he takes he takes them and places them at uh, Arlington National Cemetery in Washington. So a, a well-known guy. Well, he um, bought the, the franchise and was moving this. And now at the CBA, uh, the Continental Basketball Association was the AAA. That was the next step below the NBA. So that was, which was higher, for example, than the G League now. Um, so I was offered that coaching position, which was, you know, kind of, uh, I, I guess a little bit startling in that I'm a high school coach, but he and I didn't see eye to eye on a couple of things. Um, and, and it was obviously it was his money. It was his program, but for, and one of them was he wanted me to draft, uh, Wally Russell in with the first pick. Now, Wally Russell was the starting point guard for UMO. And was a nice little player, um, but suffice it to say that Wally Russell would have been available in the 49th round uh, had there been such a thing. And he was thinking only of, uh, you know, marketing, of the publicity of, of this player from Penquist, Maine, uh, you know, Penquist High School coming. And I said, I said, no, Moral, we got, we got to get really good players. And I'd been on the phone for nights and nights more you know not, I shouldn't say days because I was still teaching so I, I went to the school board at Ellsworth and I said will you allow me to have uh, a sabbatical will you allow me to, to coach the lumberjacks um, and then you know come back and determine whether I wanted to stay with Ellsworth and, and they said no they said make your choice uh, we, we you know we wish you well either way but we're not going to let you just take a year off so I went to um, I was offered $10,000. No, I was offered $15,000 uh, for this position. And I went with Morley, picked me up. We were driving to Bangor to go to sign contract with a lawyer. And along the way, uh, we stopped at Burger King in Brewer. And um, he made me pay for my lunch. And I said, <laughs> wow. I said, I, you know, that I, I'm really in the big leagues now. I'm I, I got to buy my own uh, Whopper. So um, 
between that and the Wally Russell, and, and finally, I even came down. I said, "I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take if I'll take the fifteen thousand if you pay me ten thousand up front, and then a thousand dollars a month for the next five months." And he didn't feel that he could afford that upfront money. So, as you could see, he was really well intentioned, but it just it didn't. To my way of thinking, I wasn't sure that it was a best career move. So I then applied to, I called Bruce McGregor, who was at Hassan, and I said, Bruce, you know, I really would like to be able to go and coach college. He said, I'll be glad to put you on as an assistant. And I said, all right, but let me, I got one more thing in mind. So Pete Fisk, my old uh, coach at MCI that helped get me into Kutcher's Academy. And, and I, when I mentioned that there was, I was one of 42 counselors, I mean, there might've been 500 young men that wanted to be a counselor there. Uh, so even though I was sincerely probably the poorest of the 42, it was not easy to get in there. Well, Pete now said, why don't you, I called him and said, I want to become a college coach. He said, why don't you go out to the final four uh, and introduce yourself and, you know, because it's who you know, not what you know. So he bought me a ticket to Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, it just happened that that final four was where Magic Johnson with Michigan State played Larry Bird. And, and the, the interesting part was I was also writing a column for the main Sunday Telegram at that time. And so they paid me also, uh, they bought, Pete bought the ticket, but they also paid me, you know, for my food and everything while I was out there in hotel. And I got put up on the same floor with Larry Bird. So uh, that was an incredible experience. Uh, I interviewed him, um, which was fascinating because he was making out with a cheerleader on the bed while <laughs> I was interviewing him. And I would ask a question and he would roll over and respond. And then he'd go back to kissing her. And then I'd you'd be writing down his response. And it was, it was just, it, it was surreal. No, is this is this the first time this has become public? I mean, are we are we going to make national news with this? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I and I'll I'll say this. I mean, I have to be careful with with some. You know, later I was invited after the Indiana State lost. I was invited to the. Uh, they have a. I guess you could call it a banquet. And the things that Larry Bird said there, I wish I'd had them You know, taped. It wasn't. We didn't tape back then. You wrote quickly instead of. Uh, <laughs> but it was just. It, it didn't matter what Larry said or did. He was such a hero in the eyes of everyone and, and Birch by and all the senators and everybody was there. And it's, it's, he got, you know, uh, like I said, there were so comments made that I, I can't repeat, but, <laughs> but it's, it didn't matter. Like I said, he could have said anything. So, but uh, so when I was out there and I, I met with a gentleman by the name of Bob Brown, who, you know, the legendary Bob Brown here in the state of Maine, outstanding coach. And he said, Rick, what, what is it that you want? And I said, well, I, I want to become a college coach. He said, would you coach at Assumption? And I said, well, absolutely. I mean, div good division two program in Worcester. I that, without a question. He says, well, why don't you go to St. Joe's? I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? He says, well, they open against Assumption. He says, go beat Assumption. And then, you know what I mean? You, then you'll <laughs> be able to get your name you know, out there. And uh, so, so I, but, and I remember saying, I said, well, you know, back then it was a girl's school. 
it wasn't particularly well known for athletics. Uh, and I, the only, the only time I'd ever gone to St. Joe's when I was at Gorham state, I went to a dance over there one time. Um, so therefore, and again, to, to meet girls and stuff <laughs> that was, you know, and, and you know, that the beauty of this, I look back at, at what a buffoon I was because Pete Fisk told me that you need to go out and introduce yourself. You need to meet people. Well, I, I took that literally. So I, every single person that I met, I, hi, I'm Rick Simons and I'm the basketball coach at Ellsworth, Maine high school. Well, I introduced myself to probably 200 high school coaches from Butte, Montana to whatever, you know, nobody that could ever help me. But <laughs> I, I guess that was, I, I was just thinking, yeah, just put yourself out there. And, you know, maybe if you talk to it, you know, you, eventually I'll sell a vacuum cleaner to somebody if I speak to enough people. Right. So <laughs> that's, but, but I took to heart what Bob Brown said. And I came back and said, okay, now I'm going to get in touch with Chris Gannon, who was looking to replace himself as the, uh, as the, you know, men's basketball coach. Now, did, did you know Chris Kiernan before this conversation? No, I didn't. Uh, I'd never heard of him and really had virtually no knowledge of St. Joe's in terms of, of their basketball program or their athletics. Uh, I, I mean, did a little research you know, before I wrote my letter to Chris, um, there was the, the position when I, when I first came down for my interview, um, the position was going to be as I was going to monitor a foreign language lab in a trailer that was out behind St. Joe's Hall. Uh, that, that was there. Um, and so that was, you know, that was kind of, I mean, you had to, there had to be something else in order for me to get a stipend enough to make it worth my while. And I also wound up being an assistant director of financial aid uh, for the external degree program. Uh, that's probably not widely known. I mean, and, and it's, it's like many small schools, uh, you do what you have to do to, to, to make ends meet. And, and I was thrilled to be able to do it. So when you, when you first took the job, now you, you know, Bob Brown tells you they're going to play assumption. And I quickly looked, it looks like you lost by 12 points to assumption that that first year. Yep. Uh, pretty close game against D2 team. So your goal was to maybe be here for a short time and move on to, uh, you know, D2 or, or a higher level if it presented itself. Is that, is that the case? Well, I don't know that that originally was my thought. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, oh boy, like one or two years, and I'm, you know, be, but at, at some point later on, I aspired to get to the division two level uh, or division one, but really it was more about, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to turn this around. And uh, I put tremendous amount of time in. Uh, and I, I say that because recruiting back then was very different than what it is today. Today, so much is done like at AAU tournaments where you can go to one location and see hundreds of kids. Uh, that wasn't the case. So I was literally driving three, four, five times a week to Hartford or to Boston or to Long Island. And, and, and I can remember so many parents would say, well, you're not going back tonight. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You drive to Worcester, you watch a game and then you turn around and drive home. 
but that was because it, it, that was how it was done. And I, and my, my, in my own mind, it was this, this has always been my kind of my mantra. And that is, if I work harder than you, then I'm going to ultimately be more successful than you. And that's, I, you know, that's what I, for years and years and years, kept that as my uh, kind of my thinking. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting way to put it, I think. And that's where St. Joseph's as an athletic department has excelled, I think, with our, you know, current and recent coaches and, and their recruiting habits and, and just tireless, uh, you know, recruiters as a staff. And that's why we've been so successful. So somehow with, with your coaching tree, and we'll get to that a little later, you know, with Mike McDevitt and, and Rob Santacola and Will Sanborn to an extent. And, you know, that, that, that uh, mantra has remained in, in the network of, of how we still think today. You know, it, it, this is back then I was recruiting to the chamber of horrors. Okay. The, the, the gym that, you know, everybody later feared uh, at the time, when I first got there, that wasn't the case. My first year, we didn't, we weren't even allowed to play there. So we played home games in the Cumberland County Civic Center. And probably the biggest win that the school had ever had goes back to Mike McDevitt, because we beat Bentley uh, when Mike made two free throws. Um, and to beat Bentley, it was you know it's like whoa i mean that that really opened the eyes of people around the northeast that because they were a very good division two program and as i say there was no home court advantage playing in the cumberland county civic center it was difficult because we were practicing anywhere and everywhere it, it, it was just a very difficult time but one of the things that i realized you know and that is if you want to be a good college coach it really is about recruiting. And, and if you can coach a little bit, that too, that's a bonus. But the bet, you know, I, I liken it to being a jockey. I mean, obviously, the, the better the horse you're riding, the better the jockey you are. And um, so I said, and, and, and in college, it's this real, it's real simple. If you don't like your team, get another one. Mm. And whereas in high school, you can't do that. You, you inherit whoever, you know, the sophomores become juniors and the juniors become seniors, et cetera. But in college, you, you, any coach that hasn't had a winning record in three or four years, it, it falls back on them because you're not working hard enough. And I, I believe that completely. And you can look at any of the, of the programs because it's just a question of, okay, what do I need to do and how am I going to go and do it? And what my thinking was this, God bless all of the professors and teachers, you know, but many, many, many of the athletes that chose to come to St. Joseph's College didn't come because of a sterling math program or whatever, whatever. Uh, it, it's because they wanted to play very competitive athletics. That, that remains the same today. And I know that, again, a lot of educators don't want to hear that. But uh, I think anybody that's in the athletic realm recognizes it. And what I decided was this. I wanted to be so, uh, I don't know what word, it, overbearing, that I, wouldn't, I didn't want any kid to be able to say no to me. So therefore, I would write dozens of letters to a particular recruit. 
and I would visit, I would make dozens of phone calls and I would, you know, go and see them play, you know, once I kind of selected the top four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever number, I'm going to be there at virtually every one of their games whenever possible. Hmm. So it became such that, boy, it's awfully difficult to say no to Coach Simons because look, look, you know, look how much time he's put into this. And I think that paid huge dividends early on. And, and quite frankly, when you get a really good player, it enables you to get other very good players because they want to play. And we see that now with at the NBA level, guys going to play with their friends. Right. And it, that's an interesting thing. It took a while to kind of catch on. But, you know, the Celtics started that trend, not not intending to. But uh, that, that's where we are now in the NBA, for sure. So I want to I want to put a pin in this because I, I don't want to miss out on some of the uh, early years stories. So when you arrived here on campus, you're talking, um, you know, the, the Chamber of Horrors uh, it wasn't that when you first got here. Um, and also the program was, you know, Chris Kiernan, all due respect, did a, did a good job with with. Uh, you know, with those teams, they hadn't had a winning season in a while, and he had a lot on his plate with many responsibilities on campus. Uh, but for you to come in and be the the head basketball coach, kind of a blank slate, although they have returning players, this is your program now. What what were some of the first steps you took to uh, to kind of change the perception of that program? Well, one of the things back then, the the rules in the NCAA were very different. And, and of course, we were in the NAIA back then. So therefore, we were allowed to begin practice whenever we wanted to. And we basically started practice a week after we arrived on campus. So I, I can remember having dozens of practices before our first game. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that I instituted was a brutally difficult conditioning program. I decided that one... We're going to be in better shape than anybody. And two, if you want to play for the monks, you are going to pay the price um, and make it, you know, extremely uh, difficult. And, you know, I look back to that. My first year, we ran, I decided that with every player in order to even begin conditioning, had to run two miles in 12 minutes. Back then, we had no track. We had nothing. So what they did was the players would run down Whitesbridge Road for a mile, stop, to a place that I sprayed paint and then turn and run back and we timed them. And if they didn't make the time, they had to run it every single day uh, until such time they made it in, in addition to all of the other things that we were doing. And quite frankly, if you didn't make it the first day, it was, I mean, your body was, you know, drained and it was very difficult to make it day three or five or nine. Well, what happened that first year uh, I had two players that decided that they were going to get a ride back from a friend <laughs> while they were, you know, uh, when they were out doing the two mile run. And, you know, Corey, I, I look today and I, I might have done some, I might do something different. Of course, obviously being much older, you mellow, but I cut them instantly when I found out that they were, you know, cheated on the two mile. One of them would have been a starter. One of them would have been the sixth or seventh man. And I knew that it was going to cost me wins. But 
I wanted to make the point very clearly that no, 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 I'm in this for the long haul. And that if you're going to cheat me on a two mile run, that, then I didn't want that person involved in, in, in our program. And in it, you know, to this day, one of those two gentlemen uh, is a friend of mine and, and understood perfectly, uh, regretted what he'd done. Uh, I don't know about the other only because he was not from near here. So I haven't spoken with him. Um, so, and he may be bitter of what I did. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's a better way that, that I might've done that. Uh, but that was where my mindset was on, you know, day one, year one of, of, of being on campus. So that was one of the things. And like I said, our conditioning program, I mean, the players, and I'm sure they have could tell you some of the stories. I remember we ran in a hurricane one day <laughs> and um, we, I used to pray for inclement weather because I wanted, you know, I, I yeah, we, let's, we don't want this to be comfortable. So, you know, I, if it was going to rain later in the afternoon, rather than run at two, we'd run at four so that they had to run in an absolute, you know, downpour. Well, the hurricane one time, we were going around campus back then again, when you were running, we'd run around campus. And I can remember, uh, and I wish I had photos of this or video, uh, because we'd go, we'd go around um, the, the Chamber of Horrors and take a left, you know, by the parking lot there. And they couldn't advance because the wind was coming so strong and blowing so hard. So it was like they were running in place for a, a matter of 10 or 15 seconds. So it, it, and those those types of things, you know, uh, there's there's many 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 of those types of stories. But I think it, it became somewhat legendary. That wow, look, and, and it was willing. One of those things that everybody shared, like a like kind of like the red badge of courage. Yeah, stuff like that allows the team to bond in a, in a different way. That you know they're, they're going through some hardship together, whether or not it's it's planned or you know it happens. But in this case you know, you're, you're making those plans. So, and I know you, you've talked about recruiting already and how, how that's just, that's basically the recipe for success in, in most ways. You know, I've, I've heard the story uh, before of, of Mike McDevitt. You, you kind of landed your first recruit, your big first big recruit, Mike McDevitt, I don't know, right when you got the job. Is that right? He, he decided um, that Mike was a, was a great young man. He wasn't a great player yet at high school in Ellsworth high school, but I mean, you know, we had a good relationship, he used to come over and, uh, he, he helped plow my little tomato patch that I had and all. So when he'd heard that I'd had, a, I was going to go down for an interview. Uh, he asked if I, you know, if he could ride down, uh, he had gone to Maine and didn't like it. Uh, and so now, you know, you're just kind of hanging out. And I said, absolutely love to have the company, love to have you go down. And, and so, of course, I and I have said this at different uh, uh, Hall of Fame inductions because because he, he bought a, a you know six, a six pack of donuts, chocolate donuts, and might have been a twelve pack. But he sat in the car while I was interviewing on campus there and ate all the donuts. And uh, I came back and said, "Have you been? Have you walked around?" And 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 he kind of he said, "Yeah, but I'm not sure we ever get out of the car because." He did a, you know, a full court press on those donuts. And, uh, but when later, when I, you know, I asked him, I said, I think I'm going to take this job. I said, do you have any interest? 
Uh, and he said, yeah, I think I do. Uh, and I had a freshman from, uh, from Worcester, Mike Heron, who also came in that year. And so those were two, you know, very, very different, but very good players. And, I, and you know, you mentioned Chris Cannon. Chris Cannon, I have the utmost respect for what he did because you hit it on the head. He was, he was wearing any number of hats. And he was, it, it, I mean, if you're going to do a good job coaching, it's a, it's a full-time job. And, uh, but, but he was doing all kinds of things, deans of students and athletic directors. And I, I think that, and, and, you know, he paid the price, so to speak, meaning took losses so that he could get the program going. And one of the things that he did was he scheduled, you know, a very difficult schedule because he wanted to be associated. He played, you know, Merrimack and Assumption and a lot of Division Twos. No one full well he was going to get thumped, but he knew it was in the best interest of the college to, to be recognized. And uh, so, I, I, like I said, I, I, his one loss record, you know, might not have been sterling, but he really did build the, the, you know, the foundation for later success. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Um, so with recruiting now i've heard some stories over the years now this this isn't a, a large campus we we have uh, i don't know what it is uh, 400 some acres that we own now but the campus certainly isn't that big and uh you know when you're recruiting guys that are probably being recruited by much bigger more well-known schools and and you have them come here for a visit that that's a that's a kind of a tricky thing like you're comparing yourself with a division two because you're going after these really high sought after guys um, talk about the uh, like recruiting visits and, and things like that and how you made those creative. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and the, the toughest thing was that we, we didn't have anything that we could point to other than the beauty of the campus. You know, the let's you know, we would make sure that they saw the lake because yes. And, and I think the lake probably appealed more to mom and dad than it did to some 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, you know, that, that first coming on campus as a high school student. Um, so then I had to take him into the gym. Now, the Chamber of Horrors, I mean, it's like I tried to avoid taking <laughs> him to the gym. Um, usually you want to point with pride at what you're doing. But, but understand something. We had no locker rooms. So, for example, at halftime of the games, I went in the men's locker room and we would have fans, men, that would be using the urinals while I'm trying to speak to the players. The, there was no place for officials. They were in the boiler room. For two people to be in that boiler room in the Chamber of Horrors, I, I mean, literally, they couldn't sit down. There was, they stood up but at least they had a door to close. So we had no weight room. We, I mean, there was, there was nothing that you could point to athletically that they would go, wow, I want to be part of that. So I think that that, as I said earlier, I had to show so much love, so much interest, so much that they didn't want to say no to me. And of course, the one thing that I was selling, um, and that is the, you know, the, the vision that we can, and, and we did have a good schedule. Uh, and again, much of that due to Chris's start, you know, starting some of those relationships. But of course we had some success early on so that now we could build on that. 
Uh, and one of the things, one of the people that absolutely turned the program around was uh, Jeff Creech. Um, Jeff Creech came to campus and he was, he was, he, you know, went to Hyde Park High School and then went on to Cushing Academy. Was not highly thought of or highly recruited, but he was an incredible athlete. And when Jeff came, he was a, a, a marginally good freshman player, maybe a little better than that, but he didn't shoot the ball very well at all. But each year he became much more successful shooting it. And with his athleticism, he became unguardable. And, and so what, I, what he allowed me to do was to recruit better and better players because a lot of players would say, thank you, coach. I appreciate your interest, but I want to go to Merrimack or Assumption or Stonehill or wherever. And I'd say, okay, I got that. But do me a favor, come watch us play. And if you can tell me you're a better player than Jeff Creech, then I'll, I'll say, good luck, you know, go there. Well, nobody could come and say that they were a better player than Jeff Creech. So none of the ones that I was recruiting. So as a result, uh, we got better and better players, you know, because they wanted to play with him and they, and they couldn't tell me that they were better than, than he was because that, you know, as I say, uh, he, he was an all American caliber player coming to a school that at that point didn't deserve one, if you know what I mean. Right. So can you, can you talk me through how you would have someone visit if you, if you're not going to show them the gym that they would be playing on or, you know, anything yep. uh, of, of, of note, as far as an athletic facility, how, how do you have people come to campus and convince them to come here other than your vision? Well, I mean, you'd, you'd give them a walk around campus and point out the beautiful things. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and again, generally would, would try to have someone if, in their particular area of, of, you know, their field of interest speak with them. But the, for the most part, I would take them in my office. And, and if they were here for two hours, they're in my office for an hour and a half. And just basically, you know, expressing my, my care, my concern, my dream, my, you know, so that they, when they left, they not only understood what my vision was, but how they were going to play into it and what a role they were going to have and how, you know, you're going to make a choice in life, but this is the most significant choice. And don't you want, et cetera, depending upon what, you know, so I, I'd put, you know, discuss uh, wins, uh, schedule, uh, you know, how they, how they were going to, you know, and I never promised, and I, in fact, I told them this, I said, I will never promise to you that you're going to start or any of those things, because I can't keep those promises, but, and, and, and so it, almost, almost always it was a personal thing. But remember, at that point, when they came on campus for many, I'd already spoken to them on the phone 20 or 30 times. I'd already written them dozens and dozens of individual letters, not, not the letter, the form letter, but, you know, the individual letter. And, and one thing I would say that carries through today, I, I'm very organized so that I kept, you know, just lengthy notes of everything and anything that was ever said in our conversations. So if he named his dog, I would always bring up his dog. If he talked about his sister's um, 
whatever. I mean, I, I would make, so it was always very personal. I think to recruit, you have to be personal. And so, like I said, those, it, it was a relationship and, and most coaches, they miss that point of it. It's, it's, it's not, I mean, and I, I know this may sound, but it's almost, it wasn't like I was recruiting the St. Joe's. It was like, no, I'm recruiting you to come play with me, not for me, but with me. Are you with me? Are you going to be part of, uh, you know, my, our, our experience? And, you know, that worked many, many times. You, you mentioned, obviously, the difference between high school and, and college and, and the roster. You know, you have the team you want for the most part, or you get a new one. Um, what point did you realize that you were an outstanding recruiter? Uh, because there's way more no's than yeses. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, and I'll tell you what, some of those you take personally. In other words, if you, if you can kind of follow along with what I've been saying, when a coach, excuse me, when a player would say to me, finally, coach, thank you, thank you, thank you, but I'm going to, you know, school B, it was like, oh, that hurts because yeah. I really do care for you and I really do want you to be. So that was, yeah, and you're right. There are more no's than there are yeses. So in terms, you know, in terms of that, um, what, what, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I recruited a young man from Valley High School, who you know, Chris, and was a terrific player uh, and came to St. Joe's. And the next year, there was a player by the name of Nick Pilot that came from Valley and played the same position and quite truthfully was a better player. But I said, you know, that's not fair that I recruit him because, you know, how can I recruit somebody and then get somebody from the same high school at the same position? Because that's like, that just, it isn't reasonable to do that to someone. And John Scheinman, who had been a previous assistant, was at Plymouth State now. And I said, John, you need to recruit Nick Peel on me so I don't need a point guard. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. You need to recruit him. So he did and wound up scoring over 2,000 points and Hall of Famer and, and was, a, was a much better player than, than Chris had been. But you know what? I don't feel badly about that because I, I did the right thing, I think. And if you're always doing the right thing, that yeah, it might cost you a little bit, but, and that, that was important. I think back to one of my recruits, there's so many stories. I'm not sure you want me to get on this path, uh, Corey, <laughs> but I, I remember one time I was recruiting a six, six kid from, uh, from uh, Connecticut and, you know, finally was going to get down and see him again for the fourth or fifth time. And I was driving through uh, around, where Fort Devers used to be um, and somewhere around Fitchburg, Mass. And it's about 4.30 in the afternoon and the sun's in my eyes coming in. And long story short, I fell asleep at the wheel and woke up being dragged along under, underneath an 18-wheeler. And um, yeah. my windshield came in through all in my lap and the, it, it, one of those, I don't know what they call them, but like a handle on the side of those big trucks came in through the passenger side. So I was being dragged and I finally woke up with that and pulled the car to my left. And I was fortunate that there was like a three or four lane highway on 495, but I didn't hit anything. So I pulled over and 
uh, you know, I remember I called my wife and said, I've been in an accident and the truck just kept on going. I don't even know if he knew what had happened, but I went to the next exit, pulled off, called her, turned around and drove home with my, with no windshield. And it's like, I remember the, the next day I had a little bit of sciatica and everything. It was, it was, I was very fortunate, but I remember being upset because I didn't get that kit. And it's like, I called him and I said, I want you to understand how badly that I want you and what has occurred and whatever, because he you know, knew I was coming down and I never showed up. So, but I can always remember that, wow, I didn't, why, how could he say no to me when I, when I was willing to, you know, sacrifice so much? There's so many of those types of stories. Well, hopefully not too many of the car accident. Uh, no. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So when you, when you took over here, you, you quickly, I think you, you changed the perception of the program. I and mean, one of those ways that you did that other than winning and recruiting and, and, and clearly you saw it as an important piece uh, was the media guides. And, and I think those are a, a, a lasting part of your legacy here. Um, and they're all on our website now in PDF form, people can still see them. But looking at those, I mean, it is a real chronicle of the history of the men's basketball program and so very impressive and probably not seen at our level at that time, I'm guessing. Well, I, I took great, great pride in that uh, in because, uh, I mean, one, I enjoy writing. So that was, you know, an opportunity for me to, to utilize that and, and try to put, again, some personality into it. And, and I, I can visualize the very first one was very, you know, very small, uh, but ultimately they became pretty lengthy and, and, and larger size. Uh, and of course the photography got better and, uh, and, and with the experiences, they became better. I mean, obviously the better, the, the more the wins, the bigger wins, the, you know, the more celebrations, the, I mean, it's a lot easier to chronicle that. So yes, it, it, I think it played a huge role. Uh, because I think it's separated. I think it differentiated us from any of the small schools. And I always remember a kid, a kid was coming and I forget the, the, his name from New Jersey, flying out of Newark and coming up to visit us. And uh, the, there was a baggage carrier there that asked him where you headed. And he said, I'm going up to St. Joe's in Maine to visit. And he says, oh, that's that little school with a big program, isn't it? And it's like, wow, that, I mean, there, there's somebody who knows why that baggage carrier knew, but I mean, that word was out. And one of the things that I did, I, I sent hundreds of them around the country each year in trade, uh, you know, send it to Kentucky and Kentucky would send me their media guide, blah, 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 blah. And, and so the, the word really spread uh, about our little program and our little, you know, on our campus and, so, yeah, and I, and I had a lot of fun with that. And, and you know, it, and it ties in a little, Corey, with the marketing, because, again, I, I had great fun in doing some of the gimmicks and, and whatever. And, you know, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I, we used to have a, a competition um, called uh, Dash for Cash, and, and we'd have Shoot for the One, where if you made a half-court short, shot you would get an opportunity to win an automobile and what you really you know that wasn't it sounds like oh how could you afford to pay twenty thousand for a new car well what i'd done was i i went to 
a man by the name of Jolly John Palsifer, who was, uh, Jolly John was, owned several car dealerships in Saco. And I, I went to him and I said, Jolly, this is what I'm doing. Uh, it, you know, I called him on the phone first and he said, I said, would you give me five minutes to explain what I would like you to do? Because what I wanted to do was pay $300 for the insurance, which is what they do with hole-in-ones at golf tournaments, et cetera. So he's, he said, yeah, whatever, I'll give you five minutes. So I went down there and I started to talk to him about what I was trying to do at St. Joe's and what we've accomplished and where I was headed. And, and, you know, and after about 25 or 30 minutes, he got up, stood up, walked around and slammed the door. Uh, and he said, okay, I've listened to you for 30 minutes. Now you listen to me. He offered me a job as a general manager of his new car dealership that he was, he was going to, he was, you know, going to take on Toyota or he was going to take on uh, some other, you know, line of automobiles. And he offered me $40,000 right there and said, I, I, he said, quote, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for someone like you to walk in my door. And he says, I want you to be my general manager. And I, I looked at him with my mouth open and said, I'm looking for $300 so I can have my shoot for the one halftime competition. And I I said, wow, I, you know, I said, I am incredibly humbled that you would think enough of me in a matter of a 30 minutes. Actually, he talked for probably another 30 about where he was going with his, you know, his dealerships. And I remember going home and telling my wife that, but I I ultimately rejected the, I said, "I, I thank you so much but I haven't quite reached the, the goals that I've set for myself, you know, blah, blah, blah. And telling my wife, I was making 20 something thousand at that time at St. Joe's. Uh-oh. And uh, I think it was 27, <laughs> I think it was 27,000 if I'm not mistaken. She said, what did you do? You turned down 40,000. And I know today that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but back then it was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like, he, you know, I, I was, I've always been passionate about whatever I've been doing, and he, re- he recognized that passion. So, well, that's that's very cool. That's a great story. Thank you for listening to the first part of our three-part series with Coach Rick Simons. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be released in the coming days. Thanks again.